It's Monday, February 8th, 2021. This is LA Podcast. I'm Scott Frazier here with Hayes Davenport and Alyssa Walker. A big week this week. Uh, We are capping what has been a tumultuous news week in particular for the the LA school system by interviewing current school board president Kelly Gomez that will be at the end of this episode what a guest yeah huge huge guest for this moment uh, big triumph and just announced her re-election campaign by the way mm-hmm. right we we do of course have news specific to her that we'll be talking about a little bit but we also have a lot of other news to get into first everybody how is how is covid treating you this week how's your week doing happy happy super bowl sunday as we're recording this this week i saw maybe you all have seen this billboard already it's a billboard for a yogurt, mm. an almond-based yogurt. That. Alyssa has seen it. It's called Ao or Io. I sent it to my friend Io. Ayo. Spelled, <laughs> like that? Just like her name. Do you remember exactly what the billboard is? Yes, I that, do. I haven't seen okay, it. Okay, what does it say? Um, Bel Air, rich, Los Feliz, smooth. Correct. Can you explain? Los Feliz. Smooth. <laughs> Can you explain that though? I that really I've not laugh. seen this really billboard exactly what it's referring. To. I just uh, rearranged my living room and my fur or my furniture, my living room a little bit this week. So now when I sit on the couch, I am staring directly at Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany. <laughs> <laughs> WandaVision <laughs> billboard is looking into my home now. <laughs> that the the AOIO billboard. Is right on uh, Temple, yes, or Beverly. It's in the worst intersection. Right by the Virgil yeah, Temple the ten, Beverly intersection, where John Meredith, friend of the show, reported this week he saw someone in on a bike with a kid, like trailing a kid behind, t- turn left onto Virgil oh. from Temple, which more power. It sounds commit terrifying. That's <laughs> very scary. <laughs> Anyone else see anything fun this week? This week, I mean, what did I? This was my my last week of of work transitioning to okay. full time podcasting. Oh, we can make the yes. announcement finally, <laughs> finally. Thought leadership. Oh, it yes. is a job. <laughs> So I I saw very, very little. Uh, I did very little besides just, um, you know, lead my thoughts, make sure that they are. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So this week where I, I would say trends more or less continued mm-hmm. related to the pandemic. We've had cases hovering at around the three to six thousand cases per day range. Huge drop from previous weeks. Vaccines are getting out there faster. 10%. 10% of L.A. County uh, residents have received at least the first dose of a vaccine. Mm -hmm. Although that's not going to go up by much this week because pretty much all the county sites from Tuesday on, they said, are just doing second shots. Right. And we've still had a huge and like very tragic number of deaths Mm -hmm. every day. But hospitalizations are continuing to fall by hundreds I wanna, every single day. I want to check uh, like a, a weekly Hayes Davenport optimism check. 
because I, I feel like I have been a lot more pessimistic than you lately. And, and so I need, I need your, your pick me ups. I do. I mean, like, you know, it's like, it's not an optimism based on anything except that like we did so badly that now it's inevitable that things are, are, are getting better to some extent right. because like it's, it's just because we were so ravaged by the virus and communities of people there was an article in the new york times this week mm-hmm. this is one of like many that have like documented this issue of people packing into homes yep. and like families basically combining in homes for lack of re- resources and the ability to pay rent and how so many people are getting infected with covid that way but I mean, that's just the reality. We let it happen. Yeah. It happened, and now the combination of the vac- the vaccine, and how many people have already gotten the virus. I think we're definitely. You can just see it in the pattern now. Like we're way on the other side of the of the surge. That's true. Uh, what one one concern that I have there is that I, I think when we look at the way that the administration, the state administration is addressing this. If we go back, rewind a couple months to November around the time of Thanksgiving, Gavin Newsom was messaging that Californians needed to prepare for, and I quote, the final surge. And yeah. um, time time has passed since then. You know, we, we definitely, things have changed since November, but I, I do worry a bit that we can even see in the way that Newsom is behaving in the early months of 2021. I don't think that that messaging was a fluke. I think that, I think that Newsom and probably members of his high-level executive staff are of the opinion that this is the last of these major spikes that we will see. What what happened particularly, well, basically everywhere in the state outside of the immediate Bay, San Francisco Bay Area, this, this horrible, horrible spike over the course of the past several months will not be followed by another like a uh, similar surge in COVID cases. I think that that is by no means a sure thing, though. I don't think that that's a foregone conclusion at all, which is why, I mean, for me, some of the, what I would, I guess, say is what some of my pessimism personally is coming from a sense that we're repeating a lot of the same mistakes that we've done currently. Uh, we're repeating a lot of those mistakes that we've made earlier in the pandemic. And so are we just in sort of a lull before cases start to tick upward again? And now, you know, we're close to a year in, and so maybe people can start getting it twice. That's possible. But that's, I think, the biggest impediment Mm -hmm. to another surge happening again is like close to 40% probably in L.A. County of people have gotten it already. It's the people that are most likely to be exposed who are like out there in, in conditions to get it again. There's also a large faction of people who are in a position to keep themselves safer from the virus still. And more and more people are getting the vaccine. So I think just mathematically, it's tough to make another surge like that happen. I want to I talk to you yeah. real quick about... So la- last week, we talked about the vaccine, the, the, the vaccination regime, and how we as a state have done a very bad job focusing on equity. We've actually... California has managed to turn an equity focus for vaccination into a system where people just aren't getting vaccines and things are are being thrown out. And as we've moved to a more age-based directly vaccination regime, we've seen 
that improve a little bit. Kevin DeLeon, city council member for the 14th district, which includes Boyle Heights, lots of um, actually basically all of East Los Angeles and the downtown region, posted on Twitter this week that he is not happy with the age-based vaccination regime in particular because Latinos, Latinx Angelinos are dying very disproportionately to to their their po- share of the population here but also because as a whole that demographic base is so young that relatively few i think under 15% of latinx angelinos qualified to be vaccinated right now are are above that 65 year old threshold so that shows up in numbers that were published by the LA Times. And, and and this is not by any means unique to Los Angeles. New York City has had the same issue. Vaccinations going predominantly to, well, not predominantly, but disproportionately to white Angelinos, to basically everybody but Latinx Angelinos. And so I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts about that. In terms of just in terms of the impact, because we've talked a little bit about the benefit of the age-based vaccination regi- regime, but I, I am I did think that that was a a worthwhile line of consideration from De Leon. Well, they did have the mobile clinics. I think we talked a few weeks ago, and there was like a hint that there would be these mobile clinics, and mm-hmm. then they actually launched them. They were going out to some homeless service providers. You know, now we can kind of take these where we need to go. And my argument has always been to go to the hardest hit neighborhoods and just start setting up, just, you know, going door to door. You know, there's certain blocks, you you can see it and you can hear these stories where people have lost like multiple people in the same, you know, building and, and street. And it's, it's, it's not going to be too difficult you know, if you have something like hopefully the council member does have. I know that Nithya is doing something similar where, you know, doing like an outreach and trying to find out, you know, where the need is. And it wouldn't be that hard for the council members to take the initiative here to make sure that that, that could happen if the if the shots could come to them. I will say if you go to Dodger Stadium, we made the mistake of going to Elysian Park to the playground there and the traffic was so bad that it was backed up all the way to the five. Like traffic was stopped on the five. If you wow. think about how many cars were there um, first thing in the morning. And I was reading about seniors in Chinatown trying to go get vaccinated. Sure. It's literally in their backyard, but you have to be in a car. So like, what are we doing? Like, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. a, it's a heartening thing to see that many cars there, but also... The need is very great in Chinatown's a very old, older and not a transit dependent community. So we need to fix that. Like like uh, the the central part of, of downtown Los Angeles for decades, the primary residential base there has been seniors, senior housing, affordable housing. Yeah, for, for people on fixed I think that's one of the incomes. places that they actually took the mobile clinic was that Angeles Plaza. I got a release on that. So that is, I, they, they went they went there first. <laughs> can I just say, I mean, okay, so yeah, the, the mobile mobile clinic is a great idea. They sent it to, to South LA and announced it after the fact. I, I worry a little bit about what I would consider to be the relative weakness of the the city's messaging around not not just this specific program, but all things COVID. That includes to me De Leon complaining about access in these communities for something that I to me is something for the city 
to take care of unless you're talking about i guess i would have some concerns about genetic testing to decide like what like racial eligibility and in you know if you just like target it uh towards like certain ethnic groups then you'd have like hilaria baldwin showing up sure. like for <laughs> to get these vaccines that's just what would happen uh with like catalan accents but like i, I michael moore to me it's like huh michael moore is he bath <laughs> yes michael moore would be getting one so i mean it's the city's responsibility i think to not just make the the vaccine available in these communities but also launch the outreach programs to get people signed up they did finally create a a, a phone line initially it was just online signups signups but now you can call in to get some help doing it but like it's an outreach. The state can't really cover that, like the on the ground administration mm. of the vaccines. It kind of does have to be the city and county that are handling that aspect of it. And you know, it, like I think there's a possibility for a lot of volunteer contributions to yeah. like give people rides and things like that. And now we're probably getting to the point where more and more people are starting to get their second shot. Mm-hmm. So you'll have this, you know, this group of people that like healthcare workers or, or even 65 plus who can now pitch in on getting the shot to more people. Mm-hmm. But that also takes city infrastructure to set up those the, that, that whole like volunteering project that I don't really feel like is, of, is quite happening. Of course. Yet. Yeah, I agree with that. And I mean, we've seen Mayor Garcetti leading by example on the volunteering front. I, he's gotten... I think roundly criticized for I don't I don't hate him being out there uh, in the trenches with frontline vaccine dis- distribution although I think there is certainly a case to be made that with the administration in the state that it's in that is probably a more important place for his attention to be focused but yes I, I should just be on the phone I don't understand I do not understand how someone in that position and you know, like, like once maybe go having, <laughs> go once, yeah, right. but like whatever window, like I have into like the day to day work of the people that work in the city. It's an incredibly time consuming job. There's so much. Mm-hmm. There's an infinite, literally infinite amount of work that you can be doing. And at Dodger Stadium, you are directing traffic. And and I think that to your to your earlier point about the state not being able to handle all of the details of local administration of well, I, I just I don't think that that's the way that our response is set up. Could it have been? Yes. But I think given the speed at which we're trying to get vaccines out now, that would be a significant pivot and we would lose a lot of yeah. time. And I also want to just point out that earlier in earlier in the pandemic, local government especially the mayor, were taking credit for having, being like the, I think what they were saying was they had reduced the deaths of black Angelinos to proportional levels. And they were saying that was a a policy and administrative Mm. coup relative to what was being seen in other parts of the country where, of course, black Americans have been dying disproportionately throughout the course of the pandemic so now isn't that a dismal thing that we have to be great news that it is extremely mass death 
is now they repeated it many times as like a yeah an equity yeah like a win yes yeah an equity win yes (laughs) like Martin Luther King said. It's just so awful. <laughs> the moral arc of the universe is long, but now black people are dying at the same rate as their population oh, suggests God. that they should. Uh, so, but the, the the point I wanted to make though is that is that we had local agents taking credit for this, which implies that also they should be sharing in some of the blame for the the disproportionate nature of the deaths. Yeah, for Latinx uh, Angelinos, and also that they should be able to do mm-hmm. something about it. You know, sort of by their own framing, they should be able to do something about this vaccination problem. And then, lastly, I just want to say, when Alyssa was talking about the mobile vaccines going door to door, all I can think about is the city putting Big Worm from Friday on payroll, <laughs> just having him drive around in an ice cream truck and vaccinate people. That would be ideal. It needs to be refrigerated, right? It's a jobs program. Exactly. Uh, One way you can sort of tell that we're moving on from coronavirus in Los Angeles is we are back to talking about preservation again. Yes. This is a hot topic in a few different neighborhoods around the city. Alyssa has been doing some writing about it over at Curbed. Talk about, Alyssa, what, what some of the the projects are that people are up in arms about. Some of the, some of the, 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 the buildings. Some of the highlights. Yeah. So if you don't know how this works, we've talked about it before. I think we've talked about it. Uh, we talked about Yield, Silver Lake Gas Station. Mm-hmm. We've talked about Amoeba. We've talked about these, these battles that, that go on. And, and usually what happens is a change is introduced uh, a proposal, say, for a new building or a change of ownership of the, the land or property at, at some point. And that triggers this whole process where somebody tries to get whatever structure is there protected as it's usually a historic cultural monument, HCM. So how that works is you go make an argument to uh, a commission that specializes in that. And then if they agree, you send it to city council, who has sometimes these very entertaining conversations about if it's worth saving. And what we're seeing in recent years, too, I mean, obviously, this is like the this it, it just checks all the boxes for every possible like Internet fight that you could have, because it's often preservationists who want to keep it for a certain reason, but then sometimes that case is a little bit harder to make, especially when you factor in what would replace it, you know, what would be going up or being built or, you know, that would necessitate the removal of the old building. And I also think the story that I wanted to tell at this time too, is that during the pandemic, like we've seen all these businesses close and I, I worry that that will be preyed upon. You know, you don't want people to just be going around and snatching up businesses that are closed. Mona Holmes, my colleague at Eater, wrote this amazing story looking at all the businesses in Inglewood, right. kind of in the the Super Bowl week. You know, we're hosting the Super Bowl there next time, next year. What I don't know. Today's the Super Bowl. Okay. Well, so a year from now or two years, the next Super Bowl will be mm-hmm. here. Okay. I'm like doing some mm-hmm. math. I'm like 2022. Wait, do you think that the I've, Super Bowl is a once It might become that. So, like, <laughs> that's what I was just thinking. I was like, oh, it's two years away. 
Anyway, but she went and checked in on all these okay. black-owned businesses that had been either displaced or they had tried to, you know, keep them as part of the development. And and you see, like, they've just had a, a horrible year on top of this stadium now sitting there empty, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. right in front of them. It, it's just been, it was just very, you know, like, it's it just wrecks you to, to read yeah. these stories. We don't want that to happen either. But at the same time, we have something like Tex, and they did say it was Tex, the Mike Tex. It's Tex. So just pretend mm-hmm. it's like Tex-Mex. That's what I'm in mm-hmm. my head. It's not takes or whatever, tay or whatever you wanted to say. Takes are what it has It is created takes, but it is Tex. Mm-hmm. And he wants to, he's he's owned this, his family's owned this, this business since the early 1900s it was at a different location Mm -hmm. in downtown it's no longer there that building's no longer there Um, moved to its current location on sunset in 1962 and wants to demolish the building and build a new version of his restaurant that he says will be you know more consumer friendly and able to make money because he's has a lot of overhead for um, maintenance needs on this building, which he says is basically falling apart, very energy inefficient, doesn't have, it has a lot of like private rooms if you've been there that don't really make a lot of money unless they're like selling those out to parties every night. So he wants to demolish his building, which is basically a very small build. It's it's a big restaurant, but it's a small building on a large parking lot and build a new building that he can continue his business in and also build, I think, 200 something apartments of which I think 23 are very low-income, deed-restricted. So people are angry at him. And if you listen to the meeting where the... You're, this, being, a little, you're being a little modest. This, people are also <laughs> mad at you, Alyssa. Well, people yeah. are mad at... People, One of the comments on... So Alyssa wrote too. a piece for Curbed. The headline is, L.A. doesn't need to save every unremarkable little building. <laughs> the response to which was basically from some people, yes, they do. <laughs> and it contains a line after a very, very long paragraph from somebody. The next line is, now Alyssa Walker is another matter altogether. Okay. That continues. <laughs> that was a my That's commenters have followed me to the New York Magazine yes, transition. I'm so happy truly, that they Truly the back villain in. of the piece, Alyssa but Walker. Be mad at me. That's great. But why would you come to this meeting that to protect this restaurant that you say is like the most important restaurant in Echo Park, if not the city of Los Angeles, and scream at the owner of this business and tell him how horrible he is for wanting to continue his business. That's just where that's where it it lost me all the complaints here. Because they were basically telling him That's what happened with Amoeba. That's what happened with Amoeba. Exactly what happened with Amoeba. Some of the same people were saying some of the same things. Tex looks like what do you, uh, yeah. Uh, it looks like a castles and coasters to me. Uh, which is I don't even know if those exist outside of it sounds Arizona. good, whatever you're gonna say. It's a like a medieval themed restaurant where there are miniature roller coasters. That is what Tex looks like to me. It has enough space inside to have a roller coaster. <laughs> this I mean and I like I get it. Like I 
like the idea of be, I spend a lot of time in that area. The idea of the text building being replaced by the the, the new building, which to me, yeah, it's pretty ugly. I don't really they like it. They made it better it's looking. Unpl- you might like the new version. I, don't I, I don't think it. I've seen the newest version, so that's not. They made not it look for, more old fashioned, but not French. It's like sort of it's like vaguely unpleasant to think about. And there are like legitimate concerns about cultural heritage in different neighborhoods that I don't think that this fake French restaurant is like necessarily indicative of. But, you know, it it feels like when people talk about just like building preservation, it's like an approach to city planning that is devoid of people. Yeah. This is like totally unconscious of like the presence of people. We talked about a little bit this article from weeks ago about El Gran Burrito, this this restaurant right at Vermont and Santa Monica by the subway station, where you know it was a nicely written kind of elegiac piece for this restaurant that's like going away and talking about like what are we losing, but didn't talk about the people at all, including the restaurant owner who wants to sell, and the people that are going to live. In this incredible new affordable housing complex going up right on the subway station, uh, Fletcher Dunham on Twitter is one of the architects of it, posted the design this week, made me cry looking at this beautiful, huge project yeah. in a perfect location. The, like, the, and the, this focus on aesthetics and all the time and cost that comes with like dealing with this idea of artistic heritage is is like directly costly to people's ability to exist and thrive in the city. Yeah. And that's what you were getting at, Alyssa. I mean, yeah, that's what that project written. in particular, the one at Vermont and Santa Monica, they are creating like a food court that's going to be all legacy businesses in the neighborhood. Some of them that have been kicked out of, there's a little swap meet building down the, down the block that was just demolished. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of the restaurants that have been pushed out of like Virgil nearby, um, they're trying to find all those restaurants and try to get them either a space or a cart or a stall. And that's, Something like I've never seen done to to that extent. So El Gran Burrito, Burrito could be offered a place in this new building for like a low rent as part of this program too, which is, it's a win, 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 like triple win, this building. Mm-hmm. Um, and nobody's trying to save El Gran Burrito. We should point that out. Nobody's no. bringing that to the, um, to the monuments discussion. But there are some other... There are other projects like that are continuing to keep showing up. Some of them get introduced by the council members mm-hmm. to yeah. to try to stop development. Yeah, there was one uh, in West Adams this week that went through city council. Did not the the, the West Adams Heritage Association was trying to preserve a single family home there that's being replaced uh, with a bunch of new condo or apartment units. And Herb Wesson himself had like had joined them in trying to preserve that property. Uh, there's Shunji, the sushi restaurant on Pico Boulevard that is, I've been there, it's a good restaurant, but that it is uh, being targeted for preservation because it is in the former location of a restaurant called Ben's Chili Bowl, and the building itself is in the shape of a chili bowl. This is not the last one. There are four others, I believe. 
once we get down to the last one, maybe we could talk about preserving the that chili one. Bowl but like, district, I think, would be the only Yeah, end. or we can just take a picture of it and look at the picture. <laughs> it's not the fucking white it. rhino. I mean, I think- I mean Jesus. <laughs> I think we move these buildings, too, because they were on these corridors that nobody could have ever expected, you know, what Pico Boulevard would become. But we can move these things. And like they moved the gas station out of Silver Lake so they could build apartments on the site. And they took it apart piece by piece. It was quite something to Mm -hmm. behold. And it's going in storage, but then they're going to put it somewhere on the river and it'll be a business. It'll be like a coffee shop. I mean, so if, if we can we do can it do for that. Hearst Castle, why wouldn't we do it for an anonymous gas station on Silver Lake Boulevard? <laughs> I mean, the, yes, I do believe that this this process is entirely rinsed of history. Preservationism um, is good, I think, when when properly applied. But a lot of what is is preserved in Los Angeles is of no historic consequence. A lot of it is of historic consequence only in the worst ways. I mean, we had mm-hmm. a full knock uh, knockdown drag out fight for the Parker Center, which yeah, it was Many totally elided from the discussion. Not only the that the LAPD uh, of that era was like a, a complete paramilitary operation against black and brown Angelinos. It was explicitly organized by the person whose name yeah. is on the building. So not only was that alighted, but also the fact that it was a straight up urban renewal project that displaced tens of thousands of Japanese American residents and the of old, Little Tokyo. The old text. <laughs> I mean, and the old text. I mean, the, the, the things that are prioritized make no sense to me there are well i mean at least in the cases that we're discussing there but there are so many of these fights that you know i think i think people are looking for or trying to hearken back to a like a less openly harmful version of capitalism like people who are like oh the Mm. the New development, the new businesses are are so predatory. That seems like it. It real that argument runs aground when you take into account the existing owners of these businesses, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> who are the people trying to sell and trying to cash out, and the fact that small landowners are generally speaking the most reactionary forces in Los Angeles. So, caping for them at the expense of you know, uh, whatever, affordable housing development or anything like that seems misguided at best. But then, I mean, I mean, if you exit the the gentrifying neighborhoods of Los Angeles, the, the majority of our historic overlay zones and things like that are meaningless, except in that they protect uh, the, the home values and offer increased tax discounts to That's right. very wealthy landowners and they enshrine legacies of racial segregation etc it's not great yeah i think that that is something a whole other story needs to be told about what why we're not preserving who whose memories and legacy are we preserving and we know that the Mm -hmm. numbers are very bad it's like you know it's nationwide even it's like most monuments honor 
white men by a vast majority or, or their, their businesses or their, their buildings that they built or designed. Um, but I think the other the thing to think about, especially when even from a geographic perspective, all these battles that, you know, I was going through this list of all these people who are introducing these monuments. There was another courtyard or they're kind of like a bungalow hillside um, series of apartments that were just discussed this week by the by the council or or yeah, by the. Yeah, but they they went to the council and they have decided to Gil Cedillo actually pulled his support for preserving them because they finally just realized it's just not going to be possible to keep these in a way that's going to preserve what they were intended for, which was like a affordable, and I'm saying affordable because it actually was like rents were like under $1,000 as recently as last year for the people who live there. And they would be like building it back in a way a developer wants to to build a hillside. This is on Echo Park, like as you go past Dodger Stadium. They do want to build a development. They would let people come back and live in the development for the same rents even. But but what we were just discussing this this whole week, like what happens then? What who who is going to come back after you're after you're displaced from this situation? So we need much stronger protections in many neighborhoods and in many situations, but we also need to probably not fight so hard for a few stucco buildings in the wealthier parts of the city, which is what all of these discussions are focused on constantly. And I, I mean, I just want to say too, since since we were discussing it, that that sort of right to return is not un, unheard of. It is something that is a requirement under the state's Ellis Act laws. If you tear down a building and you build something within, a, I think it's five years, if you build something new there, the pre-existing tenants are required to be offered their old apartments back. Of course, developers try and get around this, but I think even more substantial in terms of obstacles there is that five years later, like who knows where, where all of these families are and I don't know that there's have there has been any comprehensive attempt certainly not by the city of Los Angeles to assess the uptake on a program like that. And right. there easily could be like right. you easily could say developers have to report to us right. how many how many renters are utilizing this program. And that could be a powerful tool to figure out how to improve it. But right. the city has done no such thing. This is all, like it's it's interesting. This this whole back and forth like this process is is not it should happen like 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 awareness of like the, like the cultural heritage of different buildings like you know like preserving certain amounts of our city architecture is important just for like civic pride and like community building mm-hmm. and and place making like it's not wrong that we talk about this stuff but yeah i think Alyssa's right to be focused on like can we not fight quite so hard for every single building i understand the forces like uh, for redevelopment are also very powerful so i'm sure preservationists feel like they have to be like constantly fighting to, or, or else like everything is just going to go away but just consciousness of of human use feels like it does uh, sort of fall into the wayside in some of these conversations right and like I, to see Sidio pull his support the letter was actually quite good that he wrote or someone wrote for him um talking about you know really laying out what you win what you lose yes i mean the, the yep. those things are all those little buildings are really cool 
there's a development across the street that like is turned into some kind of Airbnb property. So they did preserve them, but now it's like for people to come yeah. be an influencer in Echo Parks. Like, is that better? I don't know. Like, yeah, no, they, I bet the same people are, are suing or often suing over those right. buildings. Can't do that. Right. Either. I mean, I, I, what they want is an empty structure. Right. I don't, so, but, but I like, I, I don't want to suggest Part either that. that like, cause like the preservationists are not like, an all-powerful force in Los Angeles. I think actually the dynamic that we see happen here uh, is, I mean, it's not, it's not like they're like the, the empire from Star Wars or whatever. Like it, it, they are very much the underdogs in a lot of actual major yeah. and well-founded preservation cases. I mean, you don't have mm-hmm. to go back in time that far to, to see like we, we lost the Ambassador Hotel, a place where... Yeah. Kennedy was murdered, a place where that was a, a, a staple for a lot of significant events of the 20th century. That's gone, but the Chili Bowl might stay. Like, I mean, it's, 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 that's the kind of dynamic that I think that we see where it's like you get thrown a bone in terms of the unimportant buildings getting saved. And the trade-off is that things that actually have historic significance are constantly being just raked underground. It's crazy. This one other commenter on Alyssa's article writes, the author would probably enjoy (laughs) seeing other beloved treasures knocked down in the name of, quote, progress. So long, Apple Pan. Adios, El Cholo. Demolish the Egyptian. Tear down the Santa Monica Carousel. And in all those cases, well, what are, what's going? There? Yeah, like, you know, <laughs> sounds fine. Pitch me. Somebody, <laughs> like, w- I love, I love the. Somebody Apple was like, "What's next? The Red Lion Tavern?" And I'm like, "Okay, thank you." <laughs> well, what's what are you building? <laughs> beer garden. Make me an offer. You got, yeah. Let's try to prevent these business owners from making money. That's what <sighs> we do. Uh, a couple more things, and then we'll get into our interview this week. Unexpectedly, to me. The L.A. Police Protective League finally made a deal with the city to delay their raises yeah. uh, that for next year. They're the last big city employee union to do it. This year's pay raise has already kicked in, so it's not going to affect this year's budget shortfall. But next year's was supposed to be 3% raise in January 2022 and a 1.5% raise on top of that in June 2022. Now those are both happening in January 2023. Okay. So you're going to get a 4.5% increase all at once. They're also, for the next three years, guaranteed $70 million in cash overtime, which sounds like a lot and is a lot compared to the early 2010s. But this year... The LAPD was going to be budgeted for two hundred million in in overtime. All of this is kind of the overtime numbers are kind of fake because they just bill whatever they want and they get paid eventually with interest. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they bank the excess overtime hours, but seventy million would be guaranteed for for the next three years in cash. This uh, is, comes at the same time as the city administrative officer Rich Llewellyn reported this week that the city is facing a seven hundred and fifty million dollar budget gap, right? Uh, and is going to testify to that effect at some point in uh, and, and that was city an, council soon. That was an increase Sorry? from six hundred, right? Six hundred plus, okay. yeah, has become seven hundred fifty million. What is what what prompted the change here? Because LAPPL's uh, previous response was sit and spin. Basically, <laughs> they yeah. were like, "We don't care <laughs> that the city is bankrupt. 
who cares? I think it was layoffs were were coming. I think they were going to lay off possibly a couple hundred officers. Mm. This is to avoid that. This does not put a damper at all to me on their political ambitions to sweep out the entire city council Basically, with yeah. the exception of a couple members who have supported them. The past uh, couple weeks ago, the new issue of the LAPPL's magazine dropped. New issue, <laughs> hot off the presses. It contains, it's basically a full magazine length advertisement to give the LAPPL, for their membership, to give the LAPPL money to uh, run PACs against the city council. It contains articles, uh, columns from Craig Lally, the president of the LAPPL, saying words to that effect. Also, Jamie McBride, another higher up, uh, talking about the need to trust the LAPPL and their political efforts against the city council. It also contains the results of a survey where they asked their membership, do you feel supported yeah. by the current city council? And it types out more than 100 responses all saying things to the effect of, here are some, the worst city council in the 30 years I have worked for LAPD, we are one critical incident away from being used as an example, even if our actions are justified. Their proposals appear written by a high school dropout. Facts are unsupported by data. Prager U would school them on what they consider facts. Oof. And Prager U, of course, is a cartoon university uh, on YouTube where they use little <coughs> animations to talk about welfare queens and stuff. <laughs> and something said over and over again, I, I only feel, this is a huge poll quote, I only feel the support of council members John Lee and Joe Buscaino with three exclamation points. They mentioned them over and over again, like these are our guys. I would vote for them if I could. I live in Rancho Cucamonga, but <laughs> I, as as we know, only about a quarter, I think, last time I looked, of LAPD sworn officers live in the city of LA. Uh, so that like the grievance machine is is well fueled for the 2022 race probably even more so by the fact that they're, they're they feel like they're making another sacrifice by delaying these raises which is going to save i think a total of about 60 million for um next year's but i mean as we've talked about at length too this is this is a context 2022 is where we expect to see a lot of movement from progressive candidates we also expect to see a large reactionary pushback. I think those are, are relatively yep. predictable at this point. Uh, with the LAPPL always a big spender in city races, seeing the surge of energy, the incumbents in particular are going to feel quite a pinch. Like, I mean, it's it's uncommon for incumbent council members to be not unheard of, but it's un certainly uncommon for them to be pushed into a runoff. But if you end up with a large anti-incumbent sentiment on both the right and the left, it's very likely that we'll see a lot of runoffs in 2022 with the possible exception of Joe Buscaino, former LAPD officer who is positioned to receive a lot of support from the police and not have that, that uh, right-wing challenger. Uh, 
Yeah, and related to all this, the first fundraising reports for the 2022 cycle are in, uh, showing how much money has been raised for city council races, the citywide races. Some of the headlines for the mayor's race, no one else has really gotten in or raised any money except except Mike Fewer, who has raised, uh, the city attorney who has raised $415,000. The race for CD5 Oof. in West L.A., is just piling up huge, huge money. Jeff Ebenstein, who is on Paul Koretz's staff, has raised $159,000. Katie Yaroslavsky, who is on uh, the county supervisor Sheila Kuehl's staff, has raised $172,000. She is former council member and county supervisor Zev Yaroslavsky's daughter-in-law. And the fundraising leader for all of these races is Sam Yebri, who's a lawyer, who has raised $322,000 already, two years out of the... What's this person's story? I don't know who that person is. Like, what? He is, uh, uh, the, the, what I've read, he, is, he would be the first Persian, the first, first Iranian Jewish member of the LA City Council. He, he's representative of that community, which is separate, uh, uh, centered in CD5 in the Tarangelis mm-hmm, uh, Westwood mm-hmm. area. And his, he is an attorney in private practice. I don't know too much uh, about his can work I just there. Say, but can he, I just say yeah. one of my personal favorites from my cursory review of his website was that he every lists his defenses of various constituent groups rights including tenants and the tenants rights that he references it's a story in the santa monica daily press where a woman was facing eviction for putting a ring doorbell on her apartment and with the help of the Ring CEO and Sam Yevry, she was able to stay in her house and retain her Ring doorbell. Really inspiring. That is <laughs> upworthy. <laughs> that is the that is the tenants' rights for this game. <laughs> but he's the like right he was a board ring. member. Ma- ma- Maybe still still is of like Bedzedek. He's mm-hmm. like very involved right. in uh, in in that community, and yeah, he's he's definitely the fundraising front runner. Insane amount in of fundraising of, for this early in this race. I mean, see, it's a lot yeah, of money. It's a lot. And you can tell which incumbents are kind of are in for sure. Mitch O'Farrell has raised one hundred nine thousand dollars in CD thirteen. There's Gil Cedillo has raised $144,000. I've started going through their money. There's lots of funny, weird donations. Monica Rodriguez in CD7 has is getting a lot of Galpin money from the dealer. If you've ever been up to like the North Hills area, there's like Galpin Ford, Galpin Volkswagen. There's Galpin Restaurant uh, on the premises of one of those dealerships. They have like a small city in the, the North Hills area, and they are supporting the incumbent. But we'll go over those donations more in, in, in future episodes. Something to look out for this week. Uh, there's some a lot of goings-on related to expanding Project Room Key in Los Angeles. There's new... Uh, we've talked about the Biden administration has opened up reimbursements for emergency emergency shelters to 100%, including retroactive. So they're giving the city, I think, $29 million dollars for past hotels, motels that they've leased as emergency shelters. 
and it allows us through next September to really expand the emergency shelters that we're putting up in these hotels and motels. And unsunsetting the Project Room Key program, on Thursday in the Homelessness and Poverty Committee, Mike Bonin and Nithya Raman's motion to get Project Room Key going again is, is going to be in committee. Mark Ridley-Thomas, who chairs the committee, is supportive of it. There's a lot of momentum to get this going, which makes sense because it's free money from the federal government. Let's yep. take it. That said, we'll need help at the city and probably the county level to for upfront costs because FEMA takes a minute to reimburse this money in a lot of cases in the city, as we've indicated in this episode, is not super liquid right now. So whether it's a loan from the state, the county could maybe the county has a lot more money and maybe could cover some of these costs. We will have to figure out a way to get this money up front or maybe garcetti could call in uh, a chip with his friend oh, that, that that's probably not the chip that he's interested in calling at this time <laughs> let's talk to our guest lausd board president kelly gonez this is really exciting scott i'm so sorry you won't be able to join for this because it's going to be really fun we are going to talk to her about the recent debate manufactured to some extent controversy over whether or not to reopen LAUSD schools. City Council Member Joe Buscaino announced this week that he was going to put forward a resolution to sue the the LAUSD district. And the LA Times put out an op-ed saying it was time to reopen schools. And the board and the teachers union are taking a hard stand that this is not the time to reopen in L.A., including board president Kelly Gonez, who let's hear it straight from her right now on L.A. Podcast. We have a really important and exciting interview today, a very personal one for me, uh, being a mom of an LAUSD kindergartner who has not yet physically been to kindergarten, but also doing the best that we can and wanting to do the best that we can to keep everybody safe at that kindergarten, at that school. So welcome to Kelly Gonez, who is the president of the school board for LAUSD and recently announced uh, your campaign for re-election. Yes. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on with you. So just to catch everyone up, um, we've been talking about this a lot, but schools have been closed in LA. LAUSD has been closed uh, since for almost a year, since uh, March uh, 2020 due to the pandemic. And um, we really haven't seen the same type of um, drama that's occurred in other large cities. There's been a lot of closing and reopening and closing, and then a lot of calls to reopen schools from parents and uh, even suing um, the school district in some instances and other places. And we we really haven't seen any of that. We've had a very supportive um, school board, a very supportive teachers union, um, and and have, have really just been waiting until it's, it's safe enough to open. However, um, this week, Councilmember Joe Buscaino um, is said he's going to introduce a motion to school to sue the school district into opening LAUSD, and he dropped this statement onto Twitter that says, "I feel obligated to take a stand on opening our schools. Um, Angelinos deserve to immediately see a reopening plan that our students, teacher staff, and all their families can be confident in. We see the harm that has been created by keeping kids away from their classmates and a real shot at a quality education." So, I guess my first question is. 
Um, when did you learn that the council member was going to take this action? And, and what was your what was your reaction to this? Um, so I, I found out, I think after the news was already public, another board member had heard the news and, and let me know. And I had thought that the council member was considering it. And so was trying to reach out to some of my contacts and strongly discourage him from doing so. But no, I mean, when I heard it, I was I was pretty shocked. Um, I mean, on the one hand, because what he wants to sue the district over is something that we are legally prohibited from doing at this moment. So would have hoped that some background research would have gone into it in advance. Um, but also, like, as far as I'm aware, you know, Councilmember Busca, you know, hadn't reached out to anyone from the district before he decided to make this announcement. Um, certainly not to me. Had he done so and asked how he could help with school reopening, I would have had a list of suggestions for him, none of which would have included a lawsuit against the district. Um, so it was surprising and disappointing to me to find that out. You pointed out in, uh, in your response that city and county leaders could have prioritized schools and children by keeping businesses closed, but instead chose to keep malls, gyms, and card rooms open and pointing out that specifically Councilmember Buscaino was the one advocating to keep outdoor dining open in the midst of our recent COVID surge. The like were there conversations like throughout this process? I'm curious about conversations between the district and city and county leaders about the decisions that are being made not related to school that are affecting the ability to open schools more quickly. Yeah, so you know, I've certainly talked to individual city council members, not not a ton of them, but a few of them who have reached out and wanted to know how they can be helpful. And then I know Superintendent Butner has had regular conversations um, with both Mayor Garcetti, folks on city council, and the members of the county board of supervisors. And in addition, I mean, I think that the district's position has been pretty clear this entire time that if we want to reopen our schools safely, we have to prioritize students and children. And that just has not been the approach. I, I mean, I think there is no starker example of that than during the surge, we had to shut down the, the small amount of in-person services we had available for our highest need students. And I think that was the responsible decision at the time. Yet the malls remained open in the midst of holiday shopping. And it just shows that commerce is a priority and children are not. And I, it, it is very frustrating to me when someone with that kind of track record, who's obviously been really supportive of businesses, um, you know, several months down the, not, down the line is now wondering why the schools haven't been opened. And it's just like there's such a lack of self-reflection um, on how your decisions may be contributing to that. Yeah, I think what your your response was so good. And it, there was also a very strongly worded uh, response from the LUSD um, uh, superintendent, Austin Butner, which was very much in defense of, you know, what the schools have been trying to do during this whole time and, and saying that we do have a plan. We've been ready to go. But the real the real problem is priorities. And, and like you said, we can't open right now. <laughs> per the, the, the guidelines from the state. So what is the point of something like this? And, and what do you see it as, as the, um, you know, the goal for the council member? I mean, I, I understand that he is also a frustrated parent. Um, so I will, you know, I will give credit to that. I know that parents are struggling and I'm a parent myself. I, I absolutely empathize with that. However, I think it just reeks of politics, you know, that this was an intention to, you know, theoretically stand up for parents and students when there wasn't really any ground to stand on. And in doing so in a way that I think actually 
devalues the students and families from communities who've been most impacted by the virus. You know, I represent the East San Fernando Valley. Communities like San Fernando, Silmar, Pacoima have had some of the highest rates of COVID, not just in the county, but in the nation. Um, and we are just at the tail end of, of the surge. And so it's just, there is such a lack of connectedness with the challenges that some of our highest needs families are going through at this moment. That, that really frustrates me as the representative of that community. Well, that puts you and uh, and I, I think most of the board in, in kind of lockstep with UTLA on this issue. Uh, Meyer Cruz, the president of UTLA, was saying just the other day, or just yesterday, saying the temporary trauma from crisis distance learning is greater than the illness and death of family members minimizes the reality that COVID-19 disproportionately impacts poor Black, Latino, and Pacific Islander families in L.A., is this a like a, a moment where the board and UTLA are kind of a, a unified front on this issue? Or are there kind of distinctions between the 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 different approaches that the district and the and the teachers union are are taking on it? Yeah, you know, I think that there are there are some distinctions in, in sort of what we want to see in terms of what a hybrid model would look like when we are able to reopen potentially at what moment we would want to move into that phase and also sort of what voluntary services we can offer right now in person, again, just for our highest need students. So there are some there are some differences there. And, you know, we're currently in discussions, um, negotiations with UTLA on some of those issues. But I think largely we are in agreement that it is not safe right now, that leaders across the board have not prioritized our students. And that is what is what has led us to this situation and that our teachers and school staffs should be vaccinated as soon as possible. It is, it is so hard for me to understand why that hasn't been a larger priority for our county and, and our state leaders. You know, in Pasadena and in Long Beach, school staffs are already being vaccinated. And in L.A. County, we just cannot get our act together. And that would be hugely helpful as we to be able to reopen our schools safely. So I think we are definitely in agreement on that point. I will also say, I think that this narrative of sort of parents being opposed to teachers and vice versa is just is a false one. I know many teachers and lots of them would like to be able to come back to their classrooms. I was a teacher, you know, what teachers love so much is interacting with their students. It's the joy that you experience when you're in the classroom with them. And distance learning is hard for teachers as well. Having to shift from in-person instruction to teaching remotely is, is a very large challenge. Um, and so I know there's many teachers who are eager to get back, but we are all clear that we can't do that until it is truly safe. And we are not at that moment yet. You hear um, the, the mayor often talks about how they have these in-person learning hubs at some of the rec centers in the city where they you could bring uh, your kid if you need to have them do their distance learning in a supervised environment and always says that we run these these facilities and they're very safe. But then you've been doing random testing of students and have found one in three kids are positive. I mean, that I feel like that alone should should just raise some flags and have people really question about how safe it would be to go back right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's certainly a distinction between the countywide numbers and then some of the high needs, you know, low income communities of color that LA Unified serves. In Pacoima, I think the most recent rate was one in five compared to one in 25 in Brentwood. And 
most of the communities we serve in LA Unified are are like Pacoima. They are we serve low income families, um, communities of color, and so yes, I think that the the rates are quite prevalent, and our our COVID testing that we have set up has been very illuminating to allow us to truly understand what are the rates of community spread even back before the surge. Um, so that'll be a helpful tool, I think, for us as we try to monitor at one point, will it be safe to move back to, to some sort of in-person learning? And there was also another component to announce or the, that the teachers union talked about was that the nurses were on board to create like a vaccination program within, within the schools. And this, again, would be a great community service to be able to go to your local school and, and get vaccinated. Absolutely. Yes, we've been working actively with both our school nurses and some of the LVNs who are classified staff for the district. They've been staffing our COVID testing program. So we have an infrastructure in place to be able, we have the staffing, we have the facilities, and we have the trust of the community, more importantly. You know, these are places where people feel safe. And so we're ready to open up our school sites to be part of vaccine distribution. Um, and we have said so. But again, it's it's sort of fallen on deaf ears. I think the other important point, too, is the communities that we serve have not had equal access to the vaccine the way it has been rolled out currently. And leveraging our public schools would democratize access in a really important way. There were some there is some discussion about either tacking some extra days onto the year or um, going to school through the summer. What are some of the the plans if, you know, we go back? We're not clear to go back until it's like, you know, May or June. Yeah, so we're we're certainly talking about how can we extend time next year, either through, you know, a more robust summer school program or extending next school year. So we're getting feedback right now from our labor partners and from families to hear about sort of what their preferences would be. But I think it's, you know, it's no doubt that our students have lost ground, particularly our high need students at this time because of the challenges of distance learning and I will note, like, some of those challenges are, do not fall on schools. I think everyone in our system has tried really, really hard to make distance learning as best an experience as possible. However, there are some structural conditions resulting from other systemic failures, which make it really hard for some of our students to successfully engage in distance learning, whether that's lack of access to a stable internet connection, being in crowded housing where you don't have a quiet place to learn, or families having to go to work and you are responsible for childcare for your younger siblings. So recognizing all of that, we want to provide as many learning opportunities for students as possible. So we are thinking about extending the school year potentially next year. I think we are also thinking about how do we approach instruction differently next year? Um, we've integrated socio-emotional learning in a really thoughtful way during the pandemic. And we know those needs are only going to be more important as we all recover from this collective trauma. So how can we integrate mental health supports? How can we continue socio-emotional learning so that we're thinking of students as holistic beings um, and not just focusing on reading and math? Though, though those are important, obviously. Yeah, and I really appreciated the conversations about testing and attendance. You know, we nothing is going to be realistic at this, at this time and, and really trying to make sure that the focus can be on, you know, are they learning Period, you know, and, and are they getting that, you know, a really important connection with their their teachers and, and fellow students? I have to say, like, it's I know it's really difficult for the teachers, but like our daughter's teacher is amazing and like has really turned it into this really meaningful time every day. So, I mean, it it's not that they're not learning. It's not that they're not in school. So it, it, there is 
there is a lot still being contributed and people don't need to think that it's all, you know, a lost year. Absolutely. I, I've heard of it being described as unfinished learning. So sort of recognizing that there's not a deficit, but of course we didn't get to cover everything we would have otherwise covered had this been a normal year. But no, I mean, I've, I've observed many classrooms from preschool, so three and four year olds trying to engage in distance learning um, all the way to high school. And it's just been incredible how hard our staffs are working at this moment, but also parents supporting that work as well and students being really resilient and trying to get through this very difficult time and continue learning. You mentioned uh, sort of what you're hearing from parents and support that you're getting from parents. But is it a there are there factions of parents who are expressing the like just reopen the structures now? Is that something that you are having to push back against? And I don't know if like there's a way to kind of estimate the breakdown among parents. Uh, is this is this a minority that are like stressing reopening? If like if there are parents speaking out in favor of that, it's hard to tell because you know the the voices that you hear from may not necessarily be representative of other families. There's a reason you right. can hear from certain certain families in certain communities more than you do others. And so I, there is certainly a vocal minority who really would like to see schools open right now. I think generally parents are re- reaching a level of frustration now that we've been almost a year into this and are really eager to be able to reopen schools. But there's a difference between you must reopen now regardless of conditions versus what can we do to be able to reopen soon? I, I think those that's an important distinction. Yeah, and it's the timing too with both San Francisco and Chicago today. I think they both have reached agreements between, I mean, it's all this like finger pointing. It's like the city, the union, the board is that, you know, and, and I think they finally have come up with a tentative plan for both of those school districts. Like we know vaccinating teachers is a priority. We might get some money maybe in the next recovery, you know, type of a plan if it goes directly to city, something like that. Would you still be in favor of, I remember getting that survey with, with about returning to school where it was like, would you be in favor of, um, you know, closing malls and, and card rooms to go back to school? Do we, are we still hoping that the city and county might do something to make sure we don't fall into the same problems again? I'm certainly hopeful that that will be part of the conversation because I think the challenge here in L.A., you know, obviously Council Member Buscayuno saw the lawsuit in San Francisco and maybe thought, hey, this is a great idea. Why don't I just do this exact same thing? The difference between San Francisco and Los Angeles is that we have never once met the state metric to be able to reopen our schools. Back when it was a more rigorous metric of seven cases per 100,000 residents, And now when it's a a higher, and I've got questions about this, a much higher metric of 25 cases per 100,000 residents. So I I feel like, you know, we've just exited this surge, hopefully, Um, yet there was such an immediate desire to reopen everything, um, which just further contributes to to our rates being persistently high. And so I, I feel like something needs to be done differently because what we don't want to happen is to reopen schools and then have the community spread just bounce right back up. And then we we just have to push our families through this really difficult time of having to close again. We want it to be sustainable when we're able to reopen our schools. So I do think other entities need to make different decisions and, again, really prioritize schools, not just in words, but in their actions. I'm not going to make you go on record about this necessarily, but like the way that like the risk of referring to state regulations is that they will very suddenly change. 
and you will be allowed to reopen schools with our existing level of community spread but the position that you're taking and i know that the teachers union is taking is not just that like you know it's these state regulations that we have nothing to do about but that you it is the the opinion of uh you and these entities that it is actually not safe for students for teachers too open right now based on the science based on based on what we know about how this disease spreads yeah absolutely and i i will just emphasize that it can be challenging both for our planning but also for families trust in our system when the metrics sure. at the state level just change dramatically and without really any justification so i think that's why we have been really thoughtful about looking at other metrics as well that's where our covid-19 testing program does really factor into play because we can monitor what does community spread look like in the communities we serve with like a laser-like focus. So I think that will remain a challenge. You know, the superintendent has an advisory committee with Kaiser and Anthem and I believe Cedar sinai as well as Stanford, Johns Hopkins, UCLA. So he's got an advisory group that helped develop the COVID testing program. And so they are advising us as well, thinking about at what point will it be safe because the reality is, yes, there are politics that have impacted the state's metrics, what is able to be reopened in different tiers. So I think it'll be really helpful to have that objective counterpoint for us to consult with as we, re- as we you know, sort of near that point. And, and just to, to reiterate, like, you know, I think people keep saying like, well, there's no plan. There's no, you would be ready if they said, okay, Monday, all cases are down and everything is safe. Like, we have we filled out the surveys. We you know who wanted wants to do hybrid. You know all these things. The HVAC work has been done. Like the the tell us a little bit about like how how ready you are. <laughs> yes, so we've we've done a lot um, to ready our schools to be able to physically reopen. Um, we have made facilities changes. We've upgraded our air filtration systems to the MERV thirteen, which I know people are more familiar with what that terminology means these days. But essentially the N95 version of, of air filtration systems, we've, we've changed our facilities. So our maintenance staff and our principals have been physically rearranging all their classrooms so that the desks are six feet apart and putting up the plexiglass and putting the stickers on the ground so kids know where they can stand to adhere to social distancing. So we've done all of that logistical work. We've also trained most of our staff on what does social distancing and safety protocols look like in the age of COVID. We have agreements with almost all of our labor partners on what hybrid instruction should look like and what role they play, what are the safety protocols, et cetera. Um, So yeah, the the missing pieces are community spread going down and staying down, and ideally our employees being vaccinated as soon as possible. So we we are ready in most ways. These two factors, which are currently outside of our control, are the barriers to us being able to reopen. This sound, all this infrastructure work sounds expensive. Are you finding the state to be good partners on putting up the money that, that for these costs? Or, I mean, like in the past, schools in general and LAUSD have always sort of operated at a at a deficit, have been uh, shortchanged on money. Do you feel like that relationship is changing at the state level and money is coming more directly or is this going to be an ongoing are, are the funding issues just going to increase as a result of this work? It's it's hard to predict. So we have gotten, you know, a significant amount of relief dollars from the federal government um, through the relief packages mm-hmm. that have passed. Not enough, but we have gotten some and that has helped with the immediate response to COVID. And then the state did pass relief dollars very early in the pandemic, which have been helpful in terms of 
covering PPE um, and other, you know, maintenance over time, all of the things that we need to ready our campuses. However, you know, Governor Newsom's recently announced reopening plan basically I would say blackmails school districts to reopen in order to get funding. That's, that's right. And, <laughs> and, and doing so in a way that significantly disadvantages the very communities that have been most impacted by COVID-19, urban areas and districts serving large numbers of students of color. So it remains to be seen what the legislature will do with that proposal. I hope that they take an equity approach where we're actually supporting the students and families whose communities have been devastated by the virus. The other thing I would say is this is going to be an ongoing challenge. You know, there is the immediate crisis response of our food distribution program, the digital divider work we've done, providing devices and hotspots, the training of our staff. But the recovery from COVID is going to be a very long road. And even if a large por- portion of the you know, adult population is vaccinated in the fall, I imagine we will be in some sort of hybrid model for probably all of next school year. And so that's going to necessitate ongoing funding. California doesn't have a great track record when it comes to funding public education. So mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not super confident is what I would say. Yeah, that's that's just what I really appreciated hearing from the union and from other advocates for the for schools such as yourself is just like we have a chance to get this right and also fix a lot of other problems at once and if we don't hold steady and do that, we're just going to end up replicating all of the harm of the past. So we, this is, this is a really big moment and it's, it's been wonderful to compare to other big cities that have just kind of been torn apart in the, in the U S and within our state. And, and there's a real sense of unity here in LA and, and uh, I think a lot of families that are, are willing to stick with teachers and, and make sure that we do it, we do it right. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that unity has not always been present. So I appreciate that we're all kind of speaking in lockstep and hopefully together we can make some changes with regard to how the state and county and city are approaching these decisions. And sometimes to show that unity, it takes one city council member for everyone to gang up on. <laughs> And Can't talk about that. he's putting <laughs> teachers and students in in danger, and we're happy to contribute to that effort as well. <laughs> Alyssa, you had some questions from from moms that you gathered. Did you ask did, them all already? Yes, did yeah. Some of those were, were questions from moms that that and and dads, I guess. But it was just the moms that replied. You you know how that goes. No shade uh, to my husband. But yeah, I think but. I think there's a lot of there are there are a lot of, of questions, but. But really, it was very easy to find all the answers to to just show people. I think what one thing that we've had a lot a lot of is transparency and um, some really wonderful statements. I was able to point people to different, you know, your statements, and you have statements for both the governor and for the local uh, local council member. Um, so I think it's it's pretty easy to find find the the answers that people need. Happy to hear it. But I mean, like even beyond questions, I just want to like underscore. Through this last year of this pandemic, I don't know if there's an entity in Los Angeles that has stepped up more than LAUSD to feed families, to provide testing sites, to and I think now going forward to be a place where people can get vaccinations. Just at every turn, just the number of people that have been kept alive and well uh, while schools have been open, as Myra Cruz pointed out on her, uh, well, uh, when she was speaking, it's yeah. just the buildings that are closed. School right. is happening. Yeah. It's yeah. been happening the entire time under incredibly difficult, uh, and it's just 
it's very inspiring to see a sort of beleaguered district like really step up in this uh in this moment of such urgency it's really wonderful to see yeah and the and the technology aspect i mean getting computers yep. into people's um hands and getting hotspots if they need them it's i know it's gone very smoothly from the people that i've talked to people who did not have uh good enough internet and now they do for the whole family. You know, that's a really, it's a pretty, pretty great thing. Um, and it seems like it's gone better here than in, in many other places, hopefully. Absolutely. I, I feel like the district has really been a leader um, in LA County, but also across the nation in terms of our response. And, you know, it can't be understated what impacts these services have had on families. You know, I've worked I've been to the grab and go locations and I see, you know, all of the people that were, we've served a hundred million meals, not just to children, but also to adults when other entities weren't willing to step up and make sure that people don't go hungry on our streets. You know, these aren't necessarily the roles you traditionally think of for a school district to play, but, you know, we recognize that so many people rely on our schools for a lot of these social services. And I, I think there's been a clear commitment all the way from the top, that that these services are essential and we will make them work however we however we need to do so. I also want to give credit to our employees. You know, I think back to March thirteenth, uh, and you know, our our principals and teachers and families got a notification like two days before that they had to start preparing all of the devices to go home mm-hmm. for a two week break. And amidst all that uncertainty, like teachers were back on Monday the. 16th, I assume, teaching um, and connecting with students. And our classified employees have been out every week since March 13th, serving meals and providing other supplies and keeping the offices open so they could help parents with technology. It's just really incredible the, the hard work of our school employees. And I hope that like, while we all recognize the value of public schools now, that we actually see actions um, and investment in public schools um, after all of this is done. Board member Gonez, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you for listening to LA Podcast. Thank you to Brian Holmes for producing. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye. 